we've been doing this two-part series uh, on the preacher in all of us. Uh, I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I believe that the writer of the book of Hebrews was correct when he said, we are all high priests after the order of Melchizedek. Now, some of us, we section off and we uh, devote an entire life to ministry that uh, means that we don't go and seek employment elsewhere. But all of us get to pronounce the good news of the gospel. And so last week we talked about that, that this is really good news we're sharing If God fights for us, that's good news we're sharing. And today I want to follow that up. We're going to go back into that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and move into the next few verses. And I would like us to think about how the good news we want to proclaim with our mouths that we want to talk about needs to be good news that we live in our lives. And it is what we as people have made a part of us or that God has orchestrated in us. So that's the challenge this morning. As we get started, though, we have to admit that there's a bit of an unholy disconnect between the good news of the gospel and what God says he will do and the way our lives actually play out. There's oftentimes, there's the great news of the gospel and there's the bad news of what happens in life. So I'm going to throw a couple of quotes at you. The first is from Gandhi. And when uh, someone asked him to consider Jesus Christ and being a follower of Jesus Christ, this was this quote, and you've probably heard it before. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. One of the things that bothers me and um, is leading me into our next series that we're going to go into in Lent is that Uh, It seems to me in America, particularly among evangelicals in America, we are divorcing ourselves from the example of Jesus Christ. And we are accepting a certain set of cultural conduct that if you conduct yourself this way, the way Christ conducted himself becomes less and less important. It just follow these rules. Um, Gandhi made a note that the followers of Christ often failed to actually follow. And that's this unholy disconnect where the promise of the good news doesn't become good news in our lives. So moving forward, this, connect, this disconnect is actually a disconnect between our Savior and ourselves or our Savior and our own salvation. Jesus is able to overcome except in my life, except with my addiction, or until he encounters my marriage, or my job problems or financial problems. Jesus doesn't do that. And uh, what we do if we adopt that kind of a mindset is, is we take our trust in God out of the personal and just kind of move it out into this ethereal space where God is able to do great things that just doesn't happen here in my backyard. When we adopt that kind of a mindset, it's no surprise that the world around us just shakes their head and goes, I'm not interested. Your gospel has nothing to offer me if that's the way it plays itself out in your life. 
One of my favorite authors, uh, Christian writers, is Brennan Manning. And Brennan Manning says this, and it's, it's one of my favorite quotes from him because it just pierces my heart. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an, unbelievable, an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. The greatest cause of atheism, according to Brendan Manning, is us. It's when Christians act like there is no God, and so we've got to have all this other stuff. We've got to fight the fight, according to Matt Moore. Because God isn't going to do it, so we need laws, and we need finances, and we need this, and we need camera systems in our church, right? Oops. But here's the thing. While the rest of the world finds it simply unbelievable, this good news of the gospel, we have the opportunity to reorient and remap and turn our life in a different way and invite Christ to do a transforming work in us that makes Christ not unbelievable but irresistible. I want to remind you, here's the thought for today that I want you to go home with, and that is that the power of the gospel is actually in our living. It's how we live. Yes, we need to speak the gospel. We need to preach the words, but we've got to live the life. Thank you, Pastor Stephanie, for your prayer for our church this morning. And we've been lifting up uh, this weekend uh, Gordon and Shirley Johnson and their loss. But you know... (laughs) It's a loss because we're going to miss Marvin, but we know that he oriented his entire life around the gospel, serving God, believing in him, and trusting him for all of his needs. And so, you know, we come to a point where we look back on the the life of Marvin Moberly and we go, what an amazing thing. This speaks the gospel. How he lived speaks the gospel. And that's true for you and me. So let's go back to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> we started with the, the uh, verses prior to this last week. So if you have your Bible or it's open on your phone, you might do a quick review of those previous verses. But uh, we're going to pick it up in verses 24 through 27. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. If you went back just in a, those moments as I was reading and looked back at what we read last week, remember 
Paul was talking about how he would become whatever he could in order to win some to Christ. When he was with the Jews, he'd live, he'd live under Jewish law. When he's with, with the Gentiles, I won't observe the Jewish law, but I'll observe the law of Christ, so I have this freedom with the Gentiles. I'm going to do this because preaching the good news is what I'm called to do, whether I'm compensated for it or not. I'm compelled to do it. You remember that. And so he follows that right The next step, right after talking about, I am going to try to win all that I can to the cause of Christ. I'm trying to share the good news of the gospel with everyone that I can. He follows that with this um, passage that has to do with training and athleticism. And it's a great coincidence, right? Uh, Probably not. That I get to talk about this in the week that the Winter Olympics start. And I watch these young people, and I think to myself, incredible, simply incredible. And it, it really doesn't matter what event you're watching, but I was watching snowboarding. Um, I've been skiing. I've never tried snowboarding. I think these guys are suicidal. I mean, you watch this, and they start out, and they go down, and, they, and, and I think it was called slope style now is what I was watching last night. Every time the Olympics comes around, I go, I'm not going to watch very much of that, and then I get sucked in, and I watch these athletes that are able to do amazing things. But they, they go down the hill, and they start out with a few tricks, but by the time they get to the bottom of the hill, I mean, they are moving. They are flying, and they hit those jumps at the end, and they do flips and twists and turns, and they... <coughs> hopefully successfully land and ski away. The events haven't started yet, but probably my favorite, and it is one of the most uneventful events in the Olympics, is ski jumping. I mean, you watch these guys, they come down these ski jumps, and they shoot off the end, and they fly. When I was a kid, we were coming back from being on the mission field, and we had some missionary friends who were Norwegian from Norway, and we had made arrangements, my, my folks had, that we would do a layover in Oslo, Norway. And our missionary friend said, well, you've got to go and see our family there, our, our relatives. They will take you around and show you all these sites in Norway. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And we were there during the summer, which is good. You don't want to be in Norway in the winter. What we found out was in the summer, it stays light till like 10 or 11 o'clock at night because you're so close to the Arctic Circle. And uh, so we got to go around and see this stuff. And our friend's father took us. He said, there's something I want to show you. And he took us out to, into these mountains. And he took us to a ski jump. Now, it was the middle of summer. So the grass was green and the sun was shining. And there was nobody skiing. But we went to the top of the ski jump. And we looked down. And I'm telling you, there's no way. I don't care how big your TV screen is. It does not do it justice. I stood at the top of a ski jump in Norway, and I, I, was on, I was on firm ground. I had shoes on, not skis, and I was still terrified. I'm not that keen on heights. And I thought to myself, I will never do this. And I have kept my word. And I watch these guys that do this. They strap on these skis, and they're huge. They're these wide skis, and they, they sit on that bar, you know, and then they, they just stand up, and they just start going down, 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 until they're screaming, and they hit the bottom, and they fly. 
And then they, you know, usually they come down and they just gracefully touch down and, you know, and then they measure the distance. But you know as well as I do, if you're my age, you know that it doesn't always go so well because you watch the wide world of sports. Okay, you guys, see, I said you guys, you guys, young kids, go on YouTube and, and YouTube ABC's Wide World of Sports. You watch the beginning, the agony of defeat, right? Right when they say those words, this guy's coming screaming down the ski jump and he hits the bottom and everything possible goes wrong. And skis go flying and his body is just ragdolling down, down this ski jump. And in that moment, you just go, Wow, sports can be really bad. I would suggest to you that oftentimes our walk in sharing the good news of Jesus is kind of like that. We go screaming ahead and God is doing great things and we're propelled by the Holy Spirit. But if we don't do it well, it looks like carnage. And so a lot of us, like me, sit there and go, I will never do that, and we keep our word. Because I don't want someone to hear my story. I don't want someone to hear about Jesus through me and go, no, thank you, I'd rather go to hell. Well, here's the good news about the good news. What we really, really need to do is simply work at bringing our doing in line. So Matt Marr reminded us with his song, Your Love Defends Me. He reminded us that God is doing far more than we are, but we need to be ready and able to walk with him, to work with him. And we bring our doing in line with what the Holy Spirit is already doing. In, you know, in our tradition, in the Wesleyan tradition, we have this wonderful piece of our theology that, that we don't hear about too often, but I think is fantastic. We call it prevenient grace. It's, it's how God goes ahead of anyone who has no idea who he is and does things in order to get their attention, and draw them to him, even though they don't even know God exists. He is at work in their lives to try and woo them and win them and, and draw them closer. And we say that is God's grace at work. And the word prevenient is like being previous to or previous and at work. So God is calling, wooing, and drawing us to him before we even know that he's active. Pastor Stephanie alluded to it in her in her wonderful prayer this morning, when she said, everything we do is in response to God. He's already at work. And so God's grace is already ahead of that. But when we become aware of it, we go, oh my goodness, God has protected me. He has been speaking to me. He has been beckoning, come, come, and inviting us. And we respond to that, and then our lives start to change as we say, Lord, I don't want to live this way. And so we have this this way that grace works that we believe where we go into then the justifying grace of God where he washes us clean and sets us free from our guilt and our past. And then we go from that into what we call the sanctifying grace where God then rewires and remaps us and transforms us so that we are no longer people whose lives say more about sin than they do about salvation. 
And I believe in that place of sanctifying grace, God does, as Matt Marr said, the heavy lifting. And we do this cooperative thing where we say, okay, Lord, you can work on that area of my life. Okay, God, you can tinker with that and help me to make that something that looks more like you and less like the damage of the world. I call that cooperative grace. Um, Another Wesleyan theologian calls it responsible grace, where we respond to God and then become responsible in our grace. I think this is where we go from God working a miracle of setting us free from sin to God doing meaningful change and meaningful transformation in our lives. So I want to caution you because I think there's this tendency that we have to think that God has a magic wand. And he waves it over certain people, people who are really fortunate or lucky. By the way, some of you have heard me say this, but I, I think lucky has no place in the vocabulary of a believer. But we, we have this thing where we think, well, you know, God does these amazing things and he waves a wand over somebody and they're just, I mean, they're just miraculously changed. Maybe it's the story we've heard of the alcoholic who just put down the bottle and said, God, help me, and never went back to drink. And we go, ooh, the magic wand just waved. Or, or maybe it's the couple whose marriage is a disaster and and. and they come back and they say, God has healed our marriage. And we think this, this magic wand was waved and all of a sudden they're nice to each other and they fall in love again. And, and you know, God works in amazing ways. But I, I really think that the true work of transformation has played out over time. I really think that the deep work of sanctification is one that plays out over a lifetime. So I look at people that that you and I know in common. And so I'm going to refer to a couple of people that some of you would remember here. So I look at people like Bruce Klein. I look at people like Ralph Helsel. (laughs) These people who were able, by God's grace, to live up into their 90s. Who seemed incredibly wise and incredibly gracious and and you could just strike up a conversation and with about three seconds you got a nugget of wisdom you remember that from these people and maybe it's somebody else maybe it's your grandma or maybe it's a pastor you had when you were a kid and you go yeah i know exactly what you're talking about because i've encountered somebody like that and they were able to just say things that had such Deep truth, things were so profound that it caught my attention and helped me. Well, I would suggest to you that those people didn't arrive there in a moment. Those people walked with God and listened to God and allowed God to change their lives moment by moment, year after year, to the point where you go, now that is meaningful. That is what a life that's been transformed really looks like. You see, when God changes us over time, it's a change that lasts. It's a change that doesn't go away. In fact, I think when we walk with God that long, there are pieces of that change that are irreversible. You just can't undo it. You're probably sitting there going, Pastor, 
what you're talking about, I have hungered, I've longed for that, but you don't know. There's this thing in my life, and it's huge, and it will not go away. And I've prayed like Paul and asked him to take the thorn away, but it's there, and it's not going away, and my life is never going to look like those people. I could back up the slides and go back to Brennan Manning's comment. It's us and what God does in us that brings the world's attention to him. Remember, the power of the gospel is in living. It's not in a sermon. It's not in a book. It's not hidden away somewhere in a cave. The power of the gospel is in how we live our lives in Jesus Christ. So, if that's the case, then let's go back to what Paul was talking about as he was writing to the church in Corinth because he, he had just talked about, I want to share the gospel. And so I, I do these things. I become this and I treat my being, my body, as an athlete who is training to win. You and I know there are very few people over in South Korea right now competing who decided to do that last week. Right? Most of those people have been preparing for this for years. They have been training for a lifetime. They have been doing everything during every waking moment probably for the last four years to get to where they're at today. And some of those people have been training in the most bizarre ways. So here's my, one of my favorite stories, probably my favorite story of this year's Winter Olympics. It's the Nigerian women's bobsled team. Now some of you remember years ago the Jamaican bobsled team, you know, the Cool Runnings uh, movie and how much fun that was and these Jamaicans who live in the tropics, we're going to go bobsledding. Well, now it's gone a step farther. And the, the country of Nigeria in Africa, they have fielded the first bobsled team from Africa in history. <laughs> and it's all women. Isn't that cool? And so as, you, as I was reading about this, I was looking at this story because I have some Nigerian friends and I wanted to commend them that, hey, you guys are in the Winter Olympics and you guys... These women are going to go screaming downhill, and uh, I'm sure most Africans have no idea what they're doing, what the bobsled team said. The bobsled team knows what they're doing, but the Africans don't know. As I read the story, I realized that the, the, the captain of the bobsled team, she was actually born here in the United States to Nigerian parents, and was on a track and field scholarship and went to college at a place where they actually had a bobsled team as well. So she started training with them. And then she went to Nigeria and she started recruiting some of these ladies who are really good athletes, sprinters. And they came to Houston because Houston, Texas is a good place to go bobsledding. <laughs> right? No. But they wanted to do this, so they built a wooden bobsled in a garage, and they trained in a garage. I don't know how you do that. But they wanted to do this. They committed to that, and so I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to watch these ladies jump on that bobsled because they have trained for this, and they have trained 
against the most uh, difficult odds. So think about that bobsled team, because as we think about believers, there are some of us who would go, oh, absolutely, I will train to be used by Christ. I will put certain practices into my life. I'll develop certain habits. I will, I will pray regularly. I will read scripture on a regular basis and try to make it a part of my life. I will go and listen to Pastor Hank talk on Sunday mornings, and I will sing those songs with Stephen and JC and Kayleen up there. And, and I'm going to put these disciplines into my life. And I'm going to serve. I'll flip pancakes at the pancake feed, and I'll mow the lawn here at the church, and I'll, I'll go down to the food pantry and help. Them. I'll put these disciplines into place in my life. Well, as we do that, those kinds of things done over and over again start to transform us. They start to change us. Somebody recently told me they'd missed church for a couple of weeks here and how they felt the deficit because I have not been practicing that habit regularly. You see, putting our faith into action starts by doing it in ourselves. You don't have to pray or read your Bible or come to church for me. Do it for what it will do to you. As we do these things, then, it builds and shapes us. It changes our attitudes and it changes our habits. In high school, one of my best friends bought a Rubik's Cube. Again, this is how old I am. While we were watching Wild World of Sports, he bought a Rubik's Cube. And... uh, we passed it around and we would try to do this little puzzle. Some of you have tried. Some of you, I'm sure, have mastered it. I never did. He did. And he mastered it. And then he went on to say, time me. And so regularly after school, we'd be sitting around and I would take my watch and I would say, go. And we would time him in solving the Rubik's Cube. He would hand it to me and I'd mess it up and we'd try again. And we'd try again. And he was phenomenal. I mean, he was so fast at this. And then he turned to me one day and he was like, you, you try it. And I said, nope, not doing it. Why not? I, I, and, and I knew exactly why I was never going to solve a Rubik's Cube because I didn't care. <laughs> the fact that I could not get uniform colors on each side of a cube meant nothing to me. It was fun to watch him do it, but he cared. He wanted to conquer that thing and he did and he became really good and quick at it. And then he would go to school and he would show and he would just shuffle that cube around and there, it's done. And I wouldn't touch him. It built up in him a certain amount of confidence and a little bit of like celebrity around our school at how fast he could do this. But he didn't do it. At the same time, as he was learning how to do that, I picked up a guitar. Another, a a friend of our family in passing, said to me one day, you know, you should try playing the guitar. It would suit your personality. I still don't know quite what she meant. (laughs) But I paid attention to it, and so I asked my mom and dad for a guitar, and they gave me a really cheap, lousy guitar, and I wore it out. I went home, and I sat in my room with a chord chart and banged it out. They made me close the door because I sounded terrible, even worse than I do now. 
But as a 15-year-old, I spent hours with that thing because somebody had said, I think you'd be good at this. This suits you. This suits you. And it changed us. I'm sure it won't surprise you now that my friend who conquered the Rubik's Cube is a nuclear scientist. That's what he does. And I play guitar. And the fool. But here's the thing. By developing these things over time, they changed us. They formed us into the people that we are today in some very beautiful ways. And so when we work into our lives these other practices, these, we call them spiritual disciplines, where we do these things regularly, we are training with Christ and his team to share the gospel, to share the good news. So these small decisions that we make over time add up. My father-in-law, I like to quote my father-in-law. He's got a lot of good little quotes that have helped me in life. One of his quotes, and he usually says it when I call him and I am frustrated over the the state of things in my life. He says, you know, this didn't happen in a day and it's not going to come out in a day. In other words, the habits we've cultivated lead us to where we're at. That can change but it changes over time. Small decisions add up. Just like a person trying to lose weight, saying, you know what? I'm not going to eat cake today. If you keep doing that over time, it adds up. And the person who says, I am, it adds up as well. So we're training for winning because the power of the gospel resides in our lives. The power of the gospel is in living. Here's the thing. If we live that out over time, I think then we become most impressive people. We don't do this because we want to be impressive. We, we don't do this because I want everyone to see my life and go, oh my word, he's a saint. I've yet to hear anybody say that about me. But when I look at those people I referred to, the Bruce Kleins and the Ralph Helsels, and I could go on and on. I look at those people and I go, but that's what I want to be like, Right? Not too long ago, we did, a, we did a little informal poll with our youth group a couple years ago, and we asked them and said, you know, who would you like to have come and maybe share with you teenagers about life? You know, their number one request was Kay Klein. <laughs> That's what I want to be like. Most impressive people, because they have lived their lives experiencing years of grace in dealing with those hard places in life, those insurmountable obstacles. And as a result, their lives have been built and have been formed and have been shaped into something that young people sit up and notice and go, now that, that is noteworthy. There's something to be said with consistency that is born out over time. If we keep with Christ, something changes in us. Jesus himself said, remain in me. And remain isn't just sit down and occupy space. Remain is this active sense of connection. Remain in me and I will remain in you and you will, help me out, somebody knows the answer, bear much fruit. Win many, share the good news. Consistency over time. 